It's, um, it's a page palindrome. It's page 1771. Or no, 1771, yeah. 1771. Thanks, guys. We're going to be um, going through the book of 1 Corinthians for a number of weeks. Right now, I think I have it um, mapped out to 32 weeks or something like that. It'll be 50 by the time we get done, of course. But, um, and so it's, it's important to recognize each of these. The, the, the sermon, sermons don't all stand alone. Each week is in its own week. Like, this is a lifestyle for us. We come every week, we try to learn a little bit more, we work our way through things over time, and it's going to take us a better part of five, six, seven months to really get, hopefully, what this, this one book has for us. And I really want to encourage you over the next couple of weeks specifically to try to read through the book of 1 Corinthians in one or two sittings, it's just all the way, just read through it. Don't, get, don't stop and get bogged down, but just read through it. It's only like nine pages, so it really is, it really is doable. So let's start with this section. Paul— called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because of our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that you may, there may be no division among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. The word of the Lord. Um, that section obviously ends with a command, right? Verse 10 says, I urge you, brothers, therefore, um, to agree with one another. It's a call to unity, right? Now, one of the things about moving through an epistle or a letter is that you only get to hear one side of a phone conversation, you know? It'd be really nice if you knew what the other side had said exactly, but you can tell that if he said, hey, you, you all need to get along, that probably what's happening, they're not getting along, right? And one of the things that's important to recognize from this section, too, is that um, God did not lead the Apostle Paul to handle the divisions in this church the same way um, I handle them on road trips. You know what I mean? Like on a road trip, my kids aren't getting along. I, you know, I turn around and be like, listen, stop or I'm going to hurt you. <laughs> right? I mean, that's basically how that works. That, that's not what he's doing here, is it? He, he doesn't say, listen, quit fighting. He says, listen, I want you guys to be completely united in mind and in thought. He's, he, what he's arguing is that real unity is actually possible. But one of the things that um, is interesting about verse 10, if you look at it, it says, 
um, this, in, in the NIV it says, that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Um, an alternate translation of no division and that you might be perfectly united would be not torn, but knitted together. The, one of the things that's kind of interesting about this section is that um, the, the language being used there in relationship to division and united is, is sewing language. It's knitting language. That's a very manly metaphor, right? But that, that's why we have a knitter on stage and will for these next five weeks, because part of the idea here is, is he's saying, don't be like a torn seam. One of the things that drives me crazy about buying tents is that they're usually not designed for the seams to hold together very long, especially if you buy, you know, cheap ones. Is that the seams are—it's always the weakest part, right? It's always the weakest part, especially where three seams—or like here, five seams come together in one spot. That's always the weakest spot. If they could just knit a tent that had no seams— it was a seamlessly just one—it would never tear, right? Because it's the seams that are the weakest. And um, even though sewing doesn't tend to be the most manly of metaphors, do you remember from Acts 18 what Paul did for his blue-collar work so that he could pay his expenses so he could preach the gospel? Last week we talked about it. He was a tent maker, right? So he spent a lot of time sitting around sewing seams together. And you know, you know, some, some, some merchant's going to come in from, the, from Corinth and be like, this tent came apart. It's always the seam, right? It's always the seam that tears. It's always the weakest part. And wouldn't it be great if you could just knit the whole thing together so that there was no seam? Um, it's kind of funny that um, one of the things that is made much of in Christ's crucifixion is that he was wearing a garment under his other garments that was seamless. It was woven to not have a seam at all, and so they didn't tear it, but they just, they, they cast lots, and whoever won just got the whole thing, because why tear something that doesn't have seams? And that's what he's, that's what the apostles are arguing here. He's like, what I want for you guys, he's saying, I want you to be, I don't want you to be like a torn seam. I want you to be like a seamless garment, that no matter what direction you pull on it, you don't hit that sweet spot with a seam where it just rips. And if you aren't that, it's, that's what's going to happen. And so he says it like it's realistic, doesn't he? he? He acts like this is totally a realistic thing to ask of people. That they agree in mind and in heart so much so that they would be this united, that they would be, you could be looked at as a seamlessly woven piece of fabric that you just can't tear. But one of the—, one of the it, problems is, is that though the church at Corinth had believed in Jesus, um, the gospel hadn't really made that big a difference to them. They believed that Jesus died for their sins according to the scriptures, that he was raised on the third day, that, I mean, they believed that. They believed that their sins were forgiven. They believed that God was important, but that hadn't reached the cross, hadn't restructured everything. It hadn't changed everything. It hadn't gotten down to the foundations, and the foundations were divided, and so they were like a torn seam. And instead of being united together, they were at each other's throats on all kinds of issues. As we go through the, um, this whole book, one of the things that you'll, you'll find, one of the reasons why I think it'll be interesting to go through this over the course of several months is there's lots of different stuff in this book. In terms of specific issues, it's not like a book about one thing. It's a letter he writes, and he, he the Apostle Paul deals with like eight or ten or fifteen different issues. It's all over the map. 
Um, for example, um, under specific issues, the first chapter he talks about unity, and then he goes on to talk about leadership and who should be a leader and how you give and receive respect, how you should handle conflicts. He spends a considerable amount of time on sexual morality, who you should, when you should judge and when you shouldn't judge, the basis for marriage, singleness, divorce, the relationship of the gospel, the gender roles, how we should worship, what it looks like to be spiritual, what the gospel is, how to be generous, and how to use your freedom. And that's just a little spattering of all the different subjects he covers in like 15 pages. But in that wider, in, while he's doing all this, there's three things that come up again and again and again throughout this book. And I, need, I want to spend a little time on them today because they're going to come up again and again over the next several months. And those three things are freedom, spirituality, and, and um, ideology. Um, now, bef- I'm gonna, before I dig into those, I want to say a little bit about a couple other things. But before, before he can dig into those three things, he has to lay down one major foundation. That's what I want to talk about, about the second half of today. But one of the things that I think is helpful about studying a book like 1 Corinthians is that we—what well, I could not just say directly to you, I can say indirectly through them, right? Like, you, you can only take me yelling at you so much, right? And at some point, you've got you be like, oh, okay, you know, whatever. And I you can even say we, but you still know I mean you, right? And— uh, but see, this way, we can read this epistle, we can judge the Corinthians, you know? And it, it's kind of, it's a little bit indirect. And then, you know, while we're judging them, we'll go, you know what? Some of that stuff's true of us too, isn't it? The, because the bottom line is, human nature doesn't change. Human nature is very, we have different technology now. We're, almost the, same, we're the same critter. And so what, what they were falling into and what was getting a hold of them, what was turning them in the wrong direction, is the same stuff that tends to happen to us. And so when we look at the way these issues played out, the way these three things played out, we're going we're to see a lot about us, I think, mirrored through that. All right, so let's look at these three things um, in order. And that is freedom, uh, spirituality, and ideology. Um, the first one, freedom, and that is basically the whole question of what, what do you permit yourself to do? How does that work? What do you do with your leisure time, energy, money, blah, 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 right? I mean, you, could, you can see in a certain sense that this is something that affluent people struggle with more than people who aren't. Like, if you lived out in the middle of nowhere, you know, with one person, and you were subsistence farming, there's not a lot of freedom issues, are there? If you're going to yell at somebody, you're going to yell at your wife. There's only other human being, right? You know, you, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to go out and work on the farm, because that's what we do here. I mean, there's, there's very limited when you're just scraping by, there's very little freedom. But the minute you get into a place like Corinth, where there's all this trade and affluence raises up, and and there's all kinds of options, especially options towards vice, the whole question of what you permit yourself to do becomes a very major question about what it means to live as a human being. What are you going to do with all the questions you have? What are you going to do? The uh, the city of Corinth, because it was really good— um, because it was in this very, very specifically sweet trade place. You didn't have to sail around Greece. You could sail through Greece and go through Corinth, and you could, and you could avoid enormous amount of difficulties and dangers. This city became enormously wealthy in a very short period of time. And so much so that when you look at the—this is a reconstruction of the city. They had a, a theater. This is where you'd go for plays and shows. 15,000 people could be seated there. But then they had another one, because this was too pedestrian for some of the people. 
they wanted a covered one, so if it rained and whatever, you know, you could still have your shows. And that seated 3,000 people, right? And then all of this here, all of this, a bunch of this, a bunch of this, a bunch of this, is all shops. It's all shopping. So in the excavation of Corinth, they figured out that the shopping center of the city of Corinth was larger than Rome. It'd be a little bit like us going to Appleton. Hmm. Uh, but, 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 that, but it was like, it was the, it was the best shopping in the empire. You, you could buy stuff in Corinth. You, can get, you couldn't get anywhere else. It was cheaper. It was more available. All you had to do was walk down the city of the city and buy it. Um, there, there was just a lot of, when they, when they excavated some of these other streets and so on, they found, they found the minimum count is uh, 33 wine houses. Most of them apparently were built to have lofts. Those lofts were brothels. And so it wasn't just the opportunity to buy a lot of stuff and to go to lots of shows and to do lots of fun things, but there was also that opportunity for vice, essentially, that, you know, what are you free to do? And that was a, that was a major question for these folks. And here's the thing. Um, we have all those same characteristics that are true about us, Right? We have leisure. We have money. We have opportunity. We can go to the store and buy more different things than anybody else ever could in the history of the world. And so the question of what—I mean, we don't even think about this, but the question, what are you going to do with your money, for example? Very few people in the history of the world had as many options as you have, right? I mean, it's a different—it's odd. I mean, there's lots of people that if you had extra money, you just save it to buy grain. That's it. That's all there is to it. For most of the history of the human race. But that's not true for us. And so the question of what are we going to do with our leisure? What are we going to do with our time? What are we going to do with our money? What are we going to do with all the choices we have? What are we going to do with anything that is not just our nose to the grindstone, getting enough to eat and survive? Well, you see, for us, that's like half our lives. And you see, the Corinthians had come to a very convenient notion about that. That Jesus was all about freedom. That's pretty convenient, right? Right? I mean, Paul said that in Galatians 5.1. He said it was for freedom that Christ set you free so you wouldn't be a slave to the law, to to law and slavery, right? I mean, that's what Paul preached. Jesus sets you free. And the Corinthians were like, that's awesome. It's a very convenient way to do your theology. To the point where you get to chapter 6, and they thought they were free to go to prostitutes. They were free to do what they wanted to. And here's the thing, like, is that really that different than us? I mean, most of us would be like, well, we can judge them because they thought they'd go to prostitutes. But there's an enormous breadth of what we believe we can do with our freedom. And if Jesus was to say, I don't think you should do that with your freedom, most of us would feel like the burden of proof was on him. You know what I mean? The second thing is um, Spirituality. I mean, everybody has to answer certain questions, and everybody's going to ask certain questions about, how, like, how, what does it mean to, like, be in this world? How do I relate to ultimate reality or find purpose or significance? Who is God? How do I deal with feeling like there's more to me than just a physical body? Like, the reality is most of us live inside our heads. We know that we're intensely psychological beings. What on earth does that mean? And what are we supposed to do with it? Um, in the city of Corinth, there were essentially two options for spirituality. 
One was that through trade, a, a number of mystery cults had come in from the east, particularly from Egypt and Phrygia. And the, the, the issue with, a myst, with the mystery religions was essentially that there was sort of this secret philosophy that you could learn that was based on these sort of like wisdom and like pithy sayings, but there was no dogma. There was no like, here are the Ten Commandments. You're supposed to not do these ten things. That wasn't part of the mystery religions. The mystery religions were philosophies. And so it was, an, it was a mystical and intellectual and abstract kind of approach of spirituality in which you sort of explored spirituality, but it didn't really have a, a demand on you. It didn't say, do this, don't do that. Now, you, have you ever heard anybody doing spirituality like that? That's probably just ancient Corinth, right? right? The other option in the city was essentially pagan religion. Historically, the Romans— defeated the Greeks, but culturally the Greeks conquered the Romans. The Romans took over the cities, but the Romans absorbed Greek culture and philosophy and art and all that kind of thing. They were infatuated with it. And one of the things they took on was pagan worship. Now, pagan worship is very consumer-driven. I don't know if you thought this through before, but every temple has a god that is the patron god of something, and if you need help with that thing, you just have to go and make an offering. And so if you were a sailor and you wanted to survive from Corinth to Rome, you could go to the temple of Poseidon, right? Poseidon is the god of the seas. You could make an offering. And the idea was that if you made an offering to Poseidon, if you scratched his back, he'd scratch yours and you'd make it to Rome in one piece, right? If you were going to be a salesman or a lawyer or a politician, you needed to speak very eloquently. It's simple. You just go down to the temple of Hermes, the god of eloquence, and you make an offering— and if you scratch his back, he'll scratch yours, and, you know, you'll be eloquent. And if you, if you need your flocks and herds to be fertile, then you go up to the top of the Agricorinth, to the temple of Aphrodite, and you pay a little bit of money, and you spend some time with a sacred prostitute, and you scratch Aphrodite's back, and she'll scratch yours, and there'll be fertility in your family, and fertility in your flocks and herds, and that's just how it works, right? Now think about that. Think about if you grew up with an understanding of religion— that essentially the gods were waiting around for you to scratch their back and they'll scratch. It's, it's very consumer-driven. The gods are, are, are a way for you to manipulate the world so that you can get out of it what you feel like you need. Now, how do you not take that to Jesus when you come to believe in him, right? It's very difficult. But now, but think about that. You've got a city where most people have experienced religious either in an abstract mysticism of that being spiritual has nothing to do with what you do with your body and it doesn't tell you what to do. It's just, it's mysticism. It's, I'm being spiritual, but it doesn't make me, tell me to do anything. And over here, you've got a religion where the gods are there for you and you can get what you want out of them. Now, and then you come to Christianity. Can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, in Christianity, spirituality has everything to do with what you do with your body because you're supposed to love your neighbor. You can't love your neighbor just being mystical and blah, blah, blah. You've got to actually help them. You've got to do good, good to them. That's what spirituality is in Christianity. See, that, that's totally beyond the pale of what religion or spirituality was to people in the first century in Corinth. It's just, it, it, it's not that you wouldn't want to help your neighbor. It's just that's not what spirituality is. Or you, yeah, you might worship Jesus, but wouldn't you worship him because you were going to give an offering for the thing he can do for you? Do you see the whole—here's the thing. Here's why I think that's relevant. I think that most of American spirituality falls in very, very well into those two categories. I feel like most Americans like to be spiritual, 
but they like their religion vague, their spirituality vague enough that it can't tell them what to do, but that it still can help them feel good about certain things they need religion, they need spirituality for, like what might happen after they die or to feel like they're a pretty good person and so on. And then on the other side, people really expect God to take care of them. That, you know, if, if, if I don't make the income I want to make, or if my kids aren't as healthy as I'd like them to be, or if, or if my career isn't working out the way I want, that, you know, I, I, God, you know, I was, I, I, most people feel like when they believe in God, they sort of put God in their debt. That, like, you, you did God a real solid favor to believe in him. And he really ought to be, you know, putting out for you, because there's lots of people that don't believe in him, and you're one of the ones that, that do, and so, you know, he really ought to be scratching your back. You scratch his, right? I think that's the way we think. I think it's no different than ancient Corinth, and I think it's, it's totally opposite of the Bible, and so I think that this book has a lot to say to us that I can't get all into right now. The last one is ideology. Now, you might think, oh, Nick, that's not fair. You just want to pick on Madisonians and, and pull up that word and whatever. Um, and, and yeah, it's, I'm sure it's part of, partly that. Um, but every person, every person has a set of facts and a system of thinking that orders their world and stabilizes their sense of identity. Everybody has an ideology. The world is too complicated for you just to simply react to everything every second. You have to have some beliefs that order the way you think about other things. That's your ideology, okay? Now, the word ideology doesn't show up in 1 Corinthians. However, the word wisdom shows up a lot. And you have to remember the context here. Wisdom isn't, as we normally think of the connotation of the word, is like dusty old things that people think, and, you know, sometimes they're true if you don't have the right technology. Uh, wisdom, remember, the word philosophy comes from the Greeks. The word philosophy is built on two Greek words, Phileo, love. Sophia, wisdom. Philosophos, the, philosophy is the love of wisdom. When a Corinthian says, or somebody writes in a Greek context, wisdom, they don't mean old knowledge that's been tested that generally works most of the time. It's referring to your way of understanding the world. It's your philosophy. And so when Paul says, the wisdom of the world, or the wisdom of Christ, or your wisdom, or your, in chapter 1 verses 1 to 10, when he says, you've been enriched in all your speech and all your knowledge, that's what he's referring to. He's essentially referring to their ideology, their way of understanding their world. Their things, the things in their life that they assume are true and that they, they, they believe in or don't believe in other things on the basis of them. And it's a huge theme in 1 Corinthians. Now, I need to push that a little, let me push that a little bit further in, in this sense. Um, in the ancient world, in particularly a place like Corinth, what they believed something very similar to what we believe. You see, it used to be people believed that rhetoric and philosophy weren't the same thing. How you said something and what you said were fundamentally different. And we trained ourselves to get past rhetoric to hear the content of what somebody was saying, and we believed the two could be separated. We generally don't think that anymore. I mean, just look around at how people act, who people have on news programs, whatever. How you say it and what you say is just the same thing. It can't be separated. It shouldn't be. That's, that's how people think nowadays. That's how, exactly how people thought in ancient Corinth. There were people who, they made their living teaching philosophy and rhetoric. And the very basis of philosophy was, was that you had ideas, and those ideas um, worked, had this inner working together, and then you nuanced them, and you broadened them, and you nuanced them, and you broadened them. And so the philosophies that these different people taught were very complex, and they, were, they cohered logically. And, and here was the great thing about that. 
in terms of commerce. If you were a teacher, it took you years to teach a student your philosophy, right? If your philosophy is too simple, you're not going to get a student for five years learning your philosophy. But then also, most of these people taught rhetoric too, because eloquence was king. There's no, right? There's no TV. There's no radio. Everything people hear, they hear spoken directly out of somebody's mouth in the open air. And so eloquence is king. If you're going to be a lawyer, a politician, anybody of consequence, you studied rhetoric because you had to speak beautifully. And so Corinth was a place where these guys would, these guys would come into town and they were rhetoric and philosophy teachers. They had very complex systems of thought. They spoke beautifully and they charged for it. Right? And then here comes Paul in the gospel. He's not a fantastic speaker. His philosophy is not complex, and he charges nothing. And they just look at him, and they, they say, you're not, you're not very ideologically respectable. You see, when he says, the, at the heart of what we're doing here is the testimony about Jesus. You see what he's saying? He's saying there is no philosophy. It's not a question of logic. It's a question of did something happen? He's saying the whole gospel rests on the testimony that a man named Jesus was crucified by Romans, put in a grave, and came alive three days later. And if you put your faith in him, you will receive salvation from God. That's not a philosophy. Now you can, philo- you can get, keep moving and you can end up philosophizing, but the foundation of what you believe in is not philosophical at all. And if you live in a culture where philosophy is king, that's not very respectable. It's not how you're supposed to be intelligent. If you're really intelligent, you speak beautifully, you have a complex philosophy, and you charge for it. What would we do with Paul? And look at us in our city. I mean, what, what do we really think about those things? I mean, don't we really want— I mean, I know what I want. I want a Christianity that is intellectually sophisticated. That's what I want. Because I don't want to be thought of as a big, dumb animal— in this city. This city respects learning, but it respects learning within its own context, within its own assumptions, within its own ideologies. And the, the, here's the thing. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that the gospel is ever going to sound that wise. The, the, the philosophy that starts with the building block of a crucified Jew is not, it's just not as slick as something that starts with 15 sociological principles and five principles of macroeconomics. You see? It's a problem. And if we don't, if we don't deal with that, we are going to be constantly, constantly have this inner turmoil of, is what I believe good enough? Why aren't people— happy with what I think? Why do people want to make an intellectual outcast out of me? Well, it's because of this. Now, if, if those are the three problems, and if you were writing this letter, where would you start? Where do you start with that church? You're writing a letter to a church that has like 10 or 15 different major conflicts. They've got their, the foundation of how they build their personality out of their understanding of freedom, spirituality, and ideology is totally messed up in relationship to the gospel. Where do you even start? Right? Well, you start with those nine verses. 
And the main focus of those nine verses um, is there's, there's three things that I think are really notable. The first is that there's a lot of Jesus in those first nine verses. Did you notice that? Like if you're new to church, you were probably like, man, it's just all Jesus, 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 Jesus. I mean, gosh, it's like religious talkie. Well, the Bible's not like that all the way through. It's these nine verses. Ten times in ten verses, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And seven times out of those nine, a reference that Jesus is Lord. That is, master, king, teacher, leader. The one who is indisputably in charge. Do you see the point Paul's trying to make to start out with? He's talking to a people for whom people are big and God is small. Do you see the issue? It's a, their understanding of freedom, spirituality, and ideology was very self-focused. What am I going to do with my freedom? I have all these options. And of course, Jesus wants me to be free, right? Spirituality is me finding myself in this mystical spirituality and me getting what I need from the gods, Right? ideology. I have these thoughts about what's intellectually sophisticated and respectable, and I'm going to believe these things, and we can tack Jesus on, but Jesus isn't going to upset all that I've learned and paid for. You see how, you see how self-focused all that is? And so he comes in, he's like, listen, guess who isn't Lord? Right? Us. Jesus, the Christ or the Messiah, who is their Lord and ours, he's kind of the big deal. He's, he's kind of a big deal. He's it. Right? Now, one of the things you'll also, if you read those verses again, one of the things you'll notice is everything in relationship to you and I is said in the passive, not the active. It really diminishes yours and my place in all of this and, and puts us in a very humble position. There's only two references to human beings at all that are active. And that is one, that some people have called on the name of Jesus to be saved. That is, they've believed in Jesus, which is still kind of passive, right? And two, that we are waiting eagerly for Jesus to be real. That is, we are waiting. That's not a very passive, or that's not a very active idea, is it? We're waiting. He's like, that's what you're doing. Basically, you call on Jesus and you wait for him to come back. You're fantastic, aren't you? I mean, but that's kind of, but, but there's all this stuff about what Jesus has done and what God has done, right? He says, he sanctified you, meaning he sets you apart for something for himself. He's called you to be holy. He's, he's initiated drawing you and he's called you. You didn't call him, right? That even when the gospel came, it says that the message of the gospel was confirmed in you. What does that mean? It means we believed it. Well, why do we believe it? We believe it because we had the good sense to believe it? No, he says, it was confirmed, meaning God caused us for our hearts to be opened so that we could believe it. Even the believing isn't our good sense. It's God's graciousness. I mean, why are you saved and somebody else isn't? Is it because you're better? It's not. It's because God called you and he confirmed his message in you so you were able to believe it. If, if, you're, if you're listening right now and you're not a Christian, you're like, you know, I'm a, it's, it, you're not going to get a placard, but it, God causes us to be open and able to be saved. That's why we're no better than our neighbors. Otherwise, we could brag about the fact that we had the good sense to believe in Jesus. The Bible says everywhere, don't boast like that, because it's not true. Right? And then it says, you've been enriched in all your speaking. That's eloquence. And all your knowledge, that's wisdom. How? It says through the testimony about Jesus, meaning we just got told that something happened. And that thing 
enriched us in the way we think about the world and the way we can talk. So if we are eloquent and if we are wise, well, it's because of Jesus. And even if we're here, you, we're, we're only going to make it to the end through him. It sa- what does it say? It says, and he will keep you to the end. You may feel like you're keeping yourself. You may feel tired And you may feel beat up, and you may feel like you're sticking it out. But from God's perspective, what he sees and what he knows is that that's not true. And you tire yourself out when you think that way. Because you stress yourself out, and you think how important you are, how you need to stick in there. Man, you're putting—you're doing—no, just let it go. It is Jesus who will keep you to the end. And why? Because in verse 9, what does it say? There's a long parenthetical statement that, that divides up two words. God, who calls you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ, is faithful. You and I like to italicize words and, you know, bold them because we have word processing programs and so on. But in Greek, what you do if you want um, something to be emphasized, you take that word and you put it at the beginning of the sentence. And in Greek, what the way the sentence reads is, faithful the God who called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ. Because the emphasis he wanted to give was this. It's not, listen, it's not you that's faithful. It's just not you that's faithful. It's God that's faithful. And that God has called you not to be utterly independent, but he's called you into a fellowship. He's called you into fellowship or community with his son, Jesus Christ. And he will keep you to the end because he is faithful. And if you get that, you can then begin to see how the gospel will redefine all these other things. Right? So, because, and because here's the thing. It's not just that God is faithful. It's that Jesus, and in chapter 2, this will be specific, namely Jesus crucified that is God's wisdom. So, for example, you know, you think, well, well, how should a Christian use freedom? Well, you can scour the whole Bible and look for freedom, but, but here's the thing. It's only when you see Jesus, the one who had ultimate freedom, who laid aside his freedom to sacrificially love and serve others, ultimately in the cross, that then we get a new idea of what our freedom's for, right? Same thing with spirituality. How was Jesus spiritual? Jesus, Jesus the most spiritual man that ever lived. Was he, was he an ethereal mystic, or did he use God to get what he wanted? No, he didn't, did he? He used his body to love his neighbor for the redemption of humanity and for the glory of God. That's what it means to be spiritual. It has nothing to do with ethereal, mystical spiritualisms. And it has nothing to do with getting what you want from God. It has everything to do with using your body which is that you are a spiritually composite being and living out life for the redemption of others and for the glory of God. Love, expressed in faith and motivated by hope, is spirituality. And you can see that because Jesus took his body and let it be nailed to a cross for the salvation of others and for the glory of God. Jesus in the cross demonstrates spirituality. And the same thing is true of ideology. Who had the right to be opinionated? Jesus. He was going to be right about everything, right? So, if anybody was going to be opinionated and be like, look, I know, I know everything. I got it. You're going to have to fit whatever you say into what I already think. Would it be Jesus? But what does Jesus do again and again and again, particularly in John's gospel? He says, I don't say anything on my own. I look to the Father. 
Father thinks the same thing he does. Why does he do that? Because he wanted to show us that's what it means to have a proper ideology, to have real wisdom, is I look first to what the Father says, and then I incorporate what I can see and understand about the world into that, to the point where he says, it says in John 8, 28, it says, then Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, meaning up on the cross, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Do you see what he's saying about his own ideology? He's saying, you're wondering, with all the stuff that I'm teaching, you're wondering if I'm really saying the words of God the Father. You're wondering that. How faithful am I? And that's a fair question. He said, but here's when you'll know. When I'm faithful enough to give up my body and to give up my life on the cross, then that's when you'll know. He was saying, if, if, if when you see that I'm willing to do exactly what the Father wants that far, that that's how far I'm willing to go, you'll know that all these speeches I gave were in his will too. How little a thing to simply speak the words that the Father gives in comparison to being able to be nailed to a piece of wood and bleed to death in the open mockery of a horde of people. The one who is faithful there is faithful here. And he said, that's how you'll know that my ideology that my wisdom is really from the Father. See, even Jesus built his idea, built his teaching from, he looked to the Father first, he laid that as foundation, and then he he taught from there. And you see, this this whole book is about, and, and listen, I think because it's what all Christianity is about. We think that we can take pieces from here and there in the Bible and come up with a sophisticated notion of this or that. What Paul says throughout the book of 1 Corinthians is this. He says, unless your spiritual logic, your understanding of freedom, and your personal ideology comes not just from Christianity and not just from the Bible and not just sort of from Jesus, but unless it comes from Jesus crucified, it's not it's not built on the foundation. He said, and, and, and so the res- here's what the result's going to be. You're not going to agree. You're not going to be knit together in a single seam, unterrible. You're not going to have the kind of undying unity that a group of people called into fellowship with the Son of God himself would naturally have if they were built on the same foundation. But if we go through a process of rebuilding these foundations, looking at, the Christ who's crucified, if we allow him to re, uh, rebuild our understanding of freedom and spirituality and ideology, if we really allow that to happen, and if we look first to see that it's Jesus Christ the Lord who is the big deal, that he is the center, and that it is through him that God demonstrates how faithful he is to us even when we're not faithful, we will build the same foundations. We will be unified. We won't be a torn seam. We'll be a group of people knitted together in unity in one seamless garment. And we'll really mirror the glory of God and we will really exist for the good of all people. That's it. Let's pray. Father, um, we, we really want to, we really want to have We really want to be a community of people that are woven together like this. That that can't be torn apart because we really agree with each other. 
And um, Father, we, 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 on one level, we, most of us probably don't want our views of freedom, spirituality, and ideology to be redefined by you. But on another level, we really do. Help us to trust you and help us to see these things. And we pray, Father, that you would bless this series, this series of months where we'll work through this book. Um, use this book to transform us as a church and as individual people and as families. Pray in Jesus' name.